Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 16th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 28 to 49. Ezekiel's vision of a new temple continues as he is shown the inner court, two tables for offerings and more, chambers for priests and the vestibule. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Good to be back with you and with our listeners. Pastor Zimmerman, in his commentary, Dr. Horace Hummel, when he introduces Ezekiel 40 to 48, he begins by saying this, From almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. So we have quite a task again in front of us today as we continue in this section. What do you, uh, just thinking through what Dr. Hummel says, what do you what do you think of his of his comment? And with such a challenging section, how are we going to approach it so that we can make something of it and use it in our lives as Christians? Well, that's a great, that's a good jumping off point. Uh, it is challenging. Um, there's there's just an initial challenge of. Um, when we're looking at the description of the temple, what, one of the harder parts is all of us who are reading this, and, and including like the first audience that's receiving uh, this vision. So, so Ezekiel gets his vision, and now, now he's um, relating this vision to, to people uh, who are supposed to receive it. Uh, the, the Lord isn't just giving a, an idle vision, like a pointless vision. There, there is a message being brought to them. But part of it is when you're looking at a building and you're trying to describe this building, um, it's hard to put something that you see into written words that an audience will be able then to read and then put in their own mind what they see, you know, uh, what, what the original person was seeing. Uh, we, we, our listeners probably can think of this um, some of them would know like well-known stories, um, uh, novels of various sorts, and then they then they see like a movie made of that novel, and and it's interesting how how people take some of the descriptors, you know, the adjectives and and descriptions in that novel and that written word, and then they're, they they put into a visual medium, and they might be like, huh, that's not quite how I would have depicted that character's like clothing or, or the way the building like a uh, facade looks or uh, the description of that car paint, you know, what color exactly was that? So there is a difficulty just in that sense. Um, but I don't think that's actually what Dr. Hummel is getting at. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, I would say he probably would have admitted that. Yeah. Sure. But I think he's kind of getting at it. It's like, well, what's the purpose of this vision? And, what are the people to be expecting uh, from this vision? 
uh, kind of meaning like what is it foretelling? What is it foreshadowing? What are we supposed to be building a temple with all these dimensions? Um, and then take the map of Israel, which is at the very end of the vision, and say, okay, here, here's exactly how we're going to divide everything by each tribe, and then we should expect that the, the tribes of Israel are now going to occupy that physical territory again. I mean, it, that is a way it could be taken. Um, are we having kind of like maybe some exuberance on Ezekiel's part about, you know, here's the way the nation should have been, and now God says he's going to restore the nation, and so it's kind of like a vision kind of coming from Ezekiel. Well, I, I don't think we really want to go there, because then that kind of makes Ezekiel the author and, and not a vision coming from God, although people can suggest that. Um, are we talking about something being put forward that is kind of talking about what the world to come may be like um, using using things using references from this world that we are uh, familiar with to talk about kind of a perfection that the Messiah will bring kind of an eschatological vision or a vision of the world to come um, so that might be a better way to, to take a look at it uh, rather than saying there's going to be a literal temple built in Judea with these exact dimensions and it's going to happen in in this age so those are kind of the challenges that, that I believe Dr. Homo would be bringing up and quite frankly if you would read pretty much anyone's commentaries any biblical commentator on Ezekiel they will note that yes these are challenging uh, chapters because we're trying to figure out what exactly is being conveyed here. Well, I, I got the sense from as uh, the way you were describing it that that last option that you gave about this is a, a description using images from this world, and I would I would even add particularly images from the Old Testament with which Ezekiel himself as a priest is going to be very familiar. So temple images. That, that are being used to describe something that's true in the end times, if we're going to take it that direction then as, as a way, and I think that's a helpful way of thinking about these chapters, what are some of the features from previously in the book of Ezekiel and even within this section that we've already seen that'll help us to get a, a handle on what Ezekiel is sh being shown and what he's showing us that'll help us to you know get a grip on some of these these matters? Okay, that's a, uh, that's that's a good way. Yes, I would I would suggest that last bit is is where I would move move it. Um, so if you're going to take us take back to the time of Ezekiel and you want to go earlier in his text, one of the things you're going to be looking at is the fact that this temple that he has seen is um, well, it's kind of glorious. It, it's it's extant, uh, meaning it's actually like standing compared to earlier in Ezekiel's prophecy that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And, and he, ha he has the, the vision to like uh, convey that to the people. Um, the priesthood, uh, Ezekiel will note earlier in his prophecy that you know, the, the priesthood had become corrupt. And now you're talking about like a priesthood being kind of purified. Uh, being restored uh, in this vision. 
Um, you have the people have been exiled. Of course, Ezekiel is a prophet of exile. And so he's working amongst Yahweh, the Lord's people, who are not in their land. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're not where the Lord had, uh, had given them, had placed them. Now they're away. But this vision is talking about there's going to be a reversal of this. And so you see kind of like those things that were happening in time. In Israel's history, uh, in, in the southern kingdom, in Judah's history, how the Lord's people had rebelled against him. They had lost their, uh, their calling, in, in a way. They, they, they had lost their, their ties to this way of life that the Lord had established with them. And they are suffering. They are suffering, really, the temporal punishment for this. Uh, it's not just historical happenstance that they are no longer living in Judah but have been moved to Babylon. No, the Lord had used the Babylonians as his instrument, as his tool to cause this. Um, the priesthood had indeed become corrupt, uh, and some of them had just been going through like the motions of the sacrifices and rituals, but were not, not pure in heart, not devoted to the Lord. Um, the, the people had been that way. So they are going through this, but now Ezekiel is seeing a vision that God has given to him, talking about like a reversal of this. They're not bound to be in exile forever. They are not bound to have the Lord's glory not dwell among them. Uh, they're not bound to be under the oppression or the governance of foreign powers who are opposed to the Lord. That is not the Lord's future for his people here. And so this vision is giving them a statement of a future that awaits them, uh, but in turns that they had known already, that they had experienced already, and a reversal of these things which had brought them to this plight. In that way, I mean, these chapters do serve as a fitting climax and conclusion to the book of Ezekiel. When you think about the whole structure of the book, you have his call in those first couple of chapters, and then a long section where he's preaching judgment. He's preaching the law against the people of Israel. You get those chapters there in the middle where he speaks to the foreign nations. And then in chapter 33, when the news reaches Ezekiel in exile that Jerusalem has fallen, he turns to comfort the people with good news of God being their Savior. And these these chapters, while the details in terms of, you know, how do we actually picture this in our minds, and, and what's this talking about in terms of, you know, the end times reality that God is going to give, while some of those details may be difficult for us to pin down precisely, we have the basic idea, quite firmly, that this is the Lord telling his people all of that judgment now, all of that destruction that had happened at the hands of the Babylonians, it's being reversed. And, and how am I going to show it to you? Well, through this new temple, this vision of a place where you will worship, and as we'll find out at the very end, that's where the Lord is going to be. And so even if some of the details that we're going to look at today in our particular text and, and some of the details in other texts in this section are a little unclear, we still have that firm picture in our mind of the reversal of, of restoration that the Lord's giving to his people by 
by being present among them. Any other features of, of our particular section or this section as a whole that we really need to, to know in order to, to get a handle on what we're going to read today? Yeah, there's one little bit of an aspect um, that we want to maybe like pin down a little bit, which is on, on the use of some of the numbers mm -hmm. which are involved in here. Um, the division in Exodus, uh, Exodus, sorry, Ezekiel 40 uh, begins with a statement about a 25th year of the exile, of, of their exile. And um, you're going to see a number of places where um, the number 25 kind of shows up either as like, um, it, it, well, it's actually kind of like really the number 50 is kind of showing up as either 50 or half 50, which would be 25, or double 50, which would be 100. And, and you're like, well, what, well, where is he going with this idea, right? What's this with 50s and 25s and 100s and things like that? Um, you know, you could have, you know, dimensions of sorts of being like 100 cubits, 50 cubits, 25 cubits, and things like that. And they are realistic. I mean, they're they're not you're not you're not talking about like a building that's like you know eight thousand feet tall or something like that. Um, but if you kind of go back into one of the things in Israel's history was in the book of Leviticus, where where the Lord talked about a jubilee year happening every fifty years. You'd, you'd have you'd have the seven seven sevens, and then the next year would be the jubilee year, and that was so. That's always tied to this number fifty, and there can be perhaps this idea uh, being brought out with those numbers kind of being repeated and being showing up um, within this vision that perhaps there's this idea of that jubilee theme is being carried in this vision. And of course, Jubilee is the idea about, um, uh, you know, slaveries coming to an end and uh, things being restored, uh, like sometimes like the um, lands being restored to people. And you have in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, this Jubilee theme uh, showing up um, tied to like the Messianic age. Um, Isaiah talks about uh, the Jubilee idea in Isaiah 61, and that's where, like, the Lord talks about uh, preaching good news um, mm. to the captives, to the, like, the enslaved. And um, so we could be working with this kind of theme with this vision that Ezekiel's given here. All right, so the number 25 and it's multiple, or sorry, the number 50 and either half of it as 25 or it's double as, as 100 could be mm -hmm. pointing us to, to Jubilee. That's some helpful information as, as we get going here. One more question, again, just so that we make sure we have the big picture set in our minds as we prepare to kind of start wading through some of these weeds. In terms of the, the vision of the new temple that Ezekiel is seeing right now, how is this going to point us to Christ? Let's go ahead and, and put that out there right at the beginning so we make sure we have that big picture in our minds. Well, the big question with all, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament is they ultimately point to the great sacrifice that the Messiah would do once and for all. And, and really, if you kind of talk about like the sacrifices um, in the Old Testament, a lot of them had to do with the fact that there is a divide between God and man, a, a divide that's been caused by 
not God, but mankind's sin against God. So, so we think of the, the Lord as holy, and his holiness has been established and uh, conveyed to us, like, you know, the standards of it in all the commands that he's issued. Um, he has a character which is holy. And now mankind has broken his standards and has a nature that is unholy. And so the question is, how, how can the unholy have access to the holy one? And the sacrifices in the Old Testament were, were the way that the Lord established for people to have that gap be overcome. So you, you, you would offer sacrifices at times for like what we used to call like um, um, the, un, the uncleanliness that, that people would have, like certain actions they take would make them ceremonially unclean. And that, that would be overcome by the sacrifice that they would offer, like a purification or sin offering. Um, you have like the burnt offerings, which are given um, to be totally consumed on the altar. And that would bring a person um, uh, become acceptable to the Lord and could actually draw near to him. The, the Lord would graciously meet with his people um, because that gap's been overcome. But these, those, these Old Testament sacrifices are like offered over and over and over and over and over. And it's like all, all that access that they grant that then humans go out and do something else that makes them unholy and unclean. And, and now they have to have that overcome. But the description of the Christ's work in the New Testament, especially you'll see that like in the book of Hebrews especially, is that Christ offers a sacrifice that's permanent. And it's greater than all the sacrifices that were ever offered in Solomon's temple. Ever offered at the, in the tabernacle in, in in the times of Moses, and it has a permanent status that gives people access to God, and so there's always that foreshadowing in in anything dealing with like the temple or sacrifices about what the Messiah, what the Christ would do, so that we could dwell eternally with God, so that we could have a permanent access to God. Um, that's overcome our sin. So, so his work has overcome our sin so that we can be permanently um, in harmony with God himself. So the, the mention of sacrifices, which we will encounter in, in our chapter today, and as well elsewhere in this section of Ezekiel, are going to be one of those connections that we make to Christ. And I do think that's one of those places, you were talking earlier about how we're seeing here imagery that we're familiar with, and particularly the Old Testament imagery that Ezekiel and his contemporaries are familiar with being used, it, it strikes me that, you know, in this vision of the new temple that Ezekiel sees, there is, you know, there are altars, there are offerings mentioned, this, this sacrifice mm -hmm. is there. But when you compare it to the, the end times vision that St. John has in his revelation, the, the mention of altars and sacrifices, that's really gone. And, and the idea of the temple there, what you see is that the that God is the temple for the city and the lamb who's there, and it's the lamb who was slain. Such that, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it, when you put those two things side by side, I do think you see how Ezekiel's vision points forward to and is fulfilled by Christ when, when you see that in, in eternity, what St. John sees, the only sacrifice that he's seeing or talking about is the lamb who was slain now reigning there in heaven forever. 
Yeah, it's, there's also a couple of things which are kind of tied um, about this that perhaps even from like the description of the temple in, in, in this vision itself is, you know, I, I did see in reading uh, at several commentaries and things for our, for our time together is that, you know, people try to put the, these dimensions together so, so taking a description and, and you and you plot out like a like a graph paper. So like, you know, one one square equals one cubit or two cubits or whatever. And you kind of put it together and you get kind of like a it's kind of like a square. And then kind of where the where the um, kind of the gateways are placed and where the temple is. And you almost get the kind of a cruciform shape, which is kind of interesting, too, which may just have something to do with what it's foreshadowing. Yeah, I mean, you certainly wonder about that. I mean, again, it's it's hard to know. It doesn't. The text doesn't reveal that particular aspect. Is this is the shape of it intended to communicate? But boy, when you when you do try to draw that picture and and see it in your mind, and you see that it, you know, you you kind of wonder. You kind of wonder. And I, yeah, so I, I I think there might be something there, Pastor Zimmerman. Let's go ahead. Let's read a little bit. Again, we're gonna do our best to try to picture this in our minds as well as understand the, the purpose of this vision being revealed to Ezekiel and to us still today. So we are in Ezekiel 40, and we're beginning at verse 28 this morning. Then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate, and he measured the south gate. It was of the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibule were of the same size as the others, and both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. And there were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its jams, and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, and he measured the gate. It was of the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibule were of the same size as the others, and both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and it had palm trees on its jams on either side, and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate, and he measured it. It had the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibule were of the same size as the others, and it had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer the outer court, and it had palm trees on its jams on either side, and its stairway had eight steps. That takes us through verse 37. I think we will pause there because we've got some similar descriptions one after the other, and Ezekiel even writes it like that. So Pastor Zimmerman, maybe on this side of the break, we've got about three and a half minutes here. Just let's try to help us picture this in in terms of the whole of Ezekiel's vision. Where, what's he been seeing, and where has he moved, or where has he been taken for this part? Just help us again. I know this is difficult, whether you're reading it or whether you're, like you and I are, we're talking about it. We don't have a screen in front of us to watch or paper to draw on. Help us to picture this in our minds, if you can. What's Ezekiel seeing here? Okay, so Ezekiel has already been led. Um, through the like exterior parts of the temple, uh, so like the the outer walls of the, of the temple, and he's he's brought in uh, by this man whose appearance is like bronze, and that's what that's what was in the earlier part of chapter forty, 
And so he got this tour of the gateways that brought you into the outer court of the temple. And there's rooms kind of all around it. And now, as he got that picture, he's been brought closer to the temple sanctuary. And the temple sanctuary is like what we might call, what we might think of as the temple proper. That, that, that's the place where in Solomon's temple where you would have the Ark of the Covenant and, you, and you'd have uh, the lampstands and, and all the things in that building. So now he's getting closer to that. And so he's, he's in what he's been given a tour of what is called uh, the inner court. And he's been shown gateways that you would enter through to go from the outer court into the inner court. Again, getting closer to the temple sanctuary. And, and these gateways are, are kind of like, a, they're kind of tall structures that you walk through. And as you're walking through them, you can see on like their facade, on their, on their jams, these pictures of palm trees, which kind of, kind of give the idea that even though you're in like a building, you're, you're, you're almost to be kind of thinking almost like uh, you're in paradise. You know, you're, you're in, a, in, a, in a place, maybe kind of like Eden, where you're going to be, where you could have dwell with God. You could be with God uh, in a way that had been lost because of mankind's sin. And so he's getting this tour and being shown this inner court, which gets you closer to the temple sanctuary where the activities would take place where we're uh, in God's presence. So the movement in general for this section, including what we looked at yesterday, is from the outside in. He's already been brought through the gateways. He's been in the outer court, and now he's being shown the gateways that are leading him into the inner court, that movement. And I think this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, about the unholy having access to the holy. The Lord is, is gradually moving his unholy people— closer to himself. He's providing for that way in closer to himself. That's the the general movement that Ezekiel's experiencing, and he's seeing right now these gateways into the inner court. And we'll pick up more of this on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at the second part of Ezekiel 40 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 16th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 28 to 49 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. He serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we were starting to talk about Ezekiel's trip, his tour into the inner court. He's being shown these gateways into the inner court. And one of the features that we haven't yet literally looked at in these gateways is the number of steps. And perhaps there's some, a little bit of uh, symbolism here because of the number of steps and a little bit of difference from what we've heard earlier. What, what do we need to notice about the number of steps that's mentioned? 
sure. It's like when we when we're looking at this vision, you get the dimensions which are provided of of the gateways, both both the gateways um, into the outer court, which was talked about uh, earlier in the chapter, and then you have these gateways going into the inner court, which is what we're dealing with in this latter half of chapter forty. And when you're reading about it, and you kind of read a description, there's like reference to like it was the same size, it was the same size, they had the same things, you know. It's like okay, they're like identical gates. All right, that's great. And now we can kind of envision it. And but when you read the description of the gateways that took you from like outside the temple grounds into the outer court, you would go up seven steps. It says those that, that their stairway had seven stairs. And like, all right, that's good. Seven. We're like, we're we're kind of familiar with that number. You know, that's a kind of holy number, you know, clean number, right? All the way back even with like Noah, right? You hit the the the, the seven pairs of the uh, clean birds that he brings uh, on board. And so we're like, okay, that's, that's a number we're, we're good with. And so the gateways into the inner court are going to have seven. Uh, and no, the description says it doesn't have seven. It has eight. You're like, huh. Well, why not seven? Why, why not this be identical? And, and why eight? You know, if, if it's not going to have seven, why, why eight? It's like, is it just simply so that it's, uh, you know, like a little more elevated? It's like, okay, we could work with that, perhaps. But the numbers of like eight also have a little bit of an idea of talking about like the Messianic age or like the, you know, the, the new week that's begun. Um, and so it's interesting that this number eight, uh, we can find descriptions of that number being used to describe um, messianic overtones or ideas about a, a new age being started. And that would kind of make sense, especially if we're talking about this vision being describing things using using reference points to what people already would know. They, People already know kind of what a temple would potentially look like, and, and they know how stairs work. Uh, but the eight stairs might be the idea that as you, you are really going to be brought closer to God's presence or the access to God's presence, which, of course, is you're, you're going from the outer court into the inner court, closer to the temple sanctuary, going up this idea of eight uh, being tied to, well, the Messiah is the one who actually brings access to God for his people. Could there be a, a connection there as well? You mentioned the palm trees before the break and the connection mm -hmm. to Eden with eight being you know, a number for a new creation. So the eighth day, you've got mm -hmm. a, a new creation. Could those things go together as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So when we kind of talk about like messianic age and new creation and new heavens, new earth, all that idea being tied up in that in that number eight. Um, if, it, if it's bringing meaning and it's not just thrown out there that, well, you know, one had seven steps, one had eight as, as being like, you know, like a like a pointless detail. OK, I, I, I wouldn't take anything in the vision as being pointless. <laughs> right. Um, that it, it's 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 
it's bringing that freight of uh, you know new creation uh, that the Messiah is uh, going to bring. I think even you might even just briefly talk on this that the fact that there are gates both in you know from the outside into the outer court and then from the outer court into the inner court. I think that you know you can't you don't just get to waltz into this temple complex on your own, but you you go through these particular entrances that the Lord lets you in, and and there you know there's three in both cases you know to get into the outer court and then three to get in the inner court, but then there's only going to be one way into the temple itself. That's kind of you know, the the cruciform mm-hmm. shape that you were talking about, and 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 just as a, as an aside for those who are following along in the Lutheran Study Bible on page thirteen seventy nine, the Lutheran Study Bible, there is a picture of, of a suggestion, and I'm finding it really helpful as I'm listening uh, to you talk, Pastor Zimmerman, and trying to keep some of these things straight. But in, in my own mind, and this is, this is part of the reason why I'm, I'm making this comment, just the fact that there are entrances into these various area, areas, I think is significant, because again, you're not going to come in on your own, because on your own you're unholy. You can only come in in the ways that the Lord brings you in closer to his holiness, and just the fact that there are gates at all, I think, testifies to that. Well, yes, and it's also like the, I, uh, um, the, the fact that you have these uh, uh, rooms in the gateways. Yeah. And they're called like side rooms. Uh, but sometimes if you would look at like some other uh, descriptions of, of this, other, like other translations of these things, they'll, they'll talk about them as actually being like guard rooms. And, uh, you know, kind of this is where the gatekeepers would be. I know that the uh, New American Standard Bible uh, refers to those side rooms as guard rooms. And there is this aspect of, um, uh, you know, the, the original temple, the one that Solomon built, uh, there were guards. There was a whole temple guard. In fact, you can read in uh, First Chronicles where, where David uh, organizes the guards. Uh, he, yeah, they, they, you know, that's the whole thing with the original temple being built. It's like David has it all like laid out, and then of course he can't build it, but Solomon does. But he had this, uh, um, the, these temple guards being being established, and then he's like, okay, well, all right, so maybe there's a hearkening back to that. But then you can think about the entry, and I think this is where it might be helpful where we talk about some of the. Um, statements that our Lord Jesus makes where he speaks about like the banquets, right? And, and kind of questions like what's necessary to get into it, right? And, and it's not just that anyone can walk in. There's, there's going to be access to it. You, you, can't, you can't get in without being invited, right? Uh, you have to be in wearing the, the wedding garment, you know, so there's that in that parable. And of course, in the, the parable of the, the 10 of uh, uh, maidens, right? The foolish, the five foolish, five wise, right? Um, you know, part of that is about who who's granting access into this. And, you know, I would not say that this is unimportant. This idea that we could just like come to God um, any way we would choose, by any, main, any means we would establish is a wrong way of thinking. We need to be dealing with this access, which we have no right in ourselves to have. We are the unholy. We have no right to come and demand access to God who is holy. 
Rather, we should be like Isaiah, right? When he see, you know, if we would see the Lord, we would be like, we're we're unclean, we're unholy, or like Peter in the boat, right? Get get away from me, Lord, right? Um, but the Lord, in His generosity and in His mercy and His steadfast love, grants us access to Him, yeah. and grants us the means of that access. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think you could connect all that to what Jesus says in John 14, where he calls himself the way, right? I mm, am the yes. way and the truth and the life. And then what he says after that, I think, ties in perfectly with what you just said. You know, no one comes to the Father. So no one would go to the Father at all. No one would have access to God except through me, Jesus says. And I mean, there you, you see, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, you know, what, what you're talking about, it sounds really exclusive. What do you mean I have to go this way? Well, yeah, that that's very exclusive. There is only one way. But on the other hand, it's it's completely inclusive because it is open. This one way, who is Jesus, is open to everyone. And so, I mean, you know, that I suppose that's that's a complaint that some people do offer. You, you Christians are so exclusive. It's only for for Christians, only for people who are in Christ. Well, true, but Christ wants all people to be in Him. <laughs> he He calls yes, all yes. to Himself. And I mean, I think. You know the the temple entrance is here, and then Christ's own words in John fourteen they they go hand in hand. Yes, and it's the great exclusivity and inclusivity of Christianity. They're both there. That's right. It, yeah, is is one way, and yet it's for the entire world. Yeah. Uh, in the sacrifices, it's offered sacrifice for the atonement of the world's sin, so that every human being could have access to God through this way. But it's going to be through this way, not through our own invented ways. That's right. The the way that God provides and, and what, what grace he shows to provide that way for us. Let's keep reading here in Ezekiel 40. We're picking up now with verse 38. There was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. And in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side, on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side, on the outside, as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate, were two tables. And off to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter. And there were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high, on which the instruments were to be laid, with which the burnt offerings and the sacrifices were to be slaughtered. And hooks, a handbreadth long, were fastened all around within, and on the tables the flesh of the offering was to be laid. And that takes us through verse 43. Again, Pastor Zimmerman, this is one of those places where I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble picturing this in my mind with all of the tables and precisely how many tables there are and, and where they're located. But... I mean, having with that conversation we just had, I do think the picture is is still clear that these these entrances are associated with sacrifice. And I mean, I think that goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about. The way that God brings us closer to him is through the sacrifice of Jesus. So I, I, I think that big picture, at least for me, is clear. But But help us try to maybe, as best we can, see this with Ezekiel. And again, give us the theological meaning. Okay, so yes, it, it, Ezekiel is seen a fully operable temple, and, and, and temple is all about sacrifice, because that's what the Lord had instituted, so, his pe- so he, would, he would dwell there with his people, his people could come 
and have access to him through these means which he instituted. So that, you know, that, that's kind of a clear thing. Um, what Ezekiel sees are um, areas and um, places where those sacrifices would be prepared and then offered. And so there would be the way of preparing. I mean, it, you have to remember the sacrifice involves the offering of an animal. And so you will kill the animal. If you don't bring like a pre-killed animal, you would bring the animal in uh, required for whatever the particular sacrifice is. And the priest there would then uh, take that animal, which has now been given to the Lord, and then uh, kill it, prepare it properly for whatever sacrifice it was. And certain sacrifices had uh, different requirements of like what animal, um, there are different sacrifices that would be like, okay, does the whole animal get like burned up or only part of the animal get burned up? And then you eat the other part of the animal, right? So the book of Leviticus uh, carries out all those details. Um, but if you take a look at the description in those verses, in verse uh, 39, it talks about these three offerings of a burnt offering, sin or purification offering, and then a guilt or reparation offering. And these are offerings which are kind of really very much in particular about uh, bringing, the, bringing access to people who are unholy. Okay, so these, aren't, these aren't thanksgivings. Okay, these, these aren't like the harvest type of offerings. These are the ones which are kind of dealing with uh, the fact of that divide between the Lord and his people uh, because of things they've done or kind of just because of their nature. Uh, I mean, a burnt offering is so that the Lord can accept anyone who comes to him through that way uh, to have uh, the Lord's wrath against sin being satisfied. And then some of the other ones are because you know, you've... Um, violated some prohibition that the Lord had made or you had some guilt because you, you were negligent was part of the Lord's um, order, the ceremonial uncleanliness, and then other times where you actually kind of had to deal with like desecration of the Lord's holy things. Um, that's what the guilt offerings are involved with, uh, perhaps even like violating certain oaths that you took by the Lord, you know, making an oath by the Lord, and then you violated it. And so in that sin, you kind of brought the Lord into it. Mm. And so the, these offerings would be, would be um, given so that these people could have that, that status with God restored and have access to him and that there would be forgiveness brought for their offenses. So and the big kind of thing is like, well, this is really what these sacrifices were supposed to do, and that's ultimately what the sacrifice that the Messiah would offer would accomplish for, for everybody. All right, so the, again, the entrances are getting, are getting closer into the temple, getting closer to that sanctuary itself. Ezekiel's moving that way. The picture is teaching us of the sacrifice of Christ that brings us closer to God. As the text continues, we, we now get to see something in the inner court. So we're picking up at verse 44 here in Ezekiel chapter 40. On the outside of the inner gateway, there were two chambers in the inner court, one at the side of the north gate facing south, the other at the side of the south gate facing north. 
And he said to me, This chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple, and the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court, and he and he measured the court a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, a square. And the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the jams of the vestibule five cubits on either side. And the breadth of the gate was fourteen cubits, and the side walls of the gate were three cubits on either side. The length of the vestibule was twenty cubits, and the breadth twelve cubits, and people would go up to it by ten steps. And there were pillars beside the jams, one on either side. That takes us all the way through the end of Ezekiel 40. That was verses 44 to 49. So Pastor Zimmerman, in verses 44 through 47, Ezekiel sees, now he's inside the inner court, and he sees these two chambers. And here his his tour guide actually tells him what's going on. He says these chambers are for priests who are either taking care of the temple or the altar. And those are particularly the sons of Zadok. What's the significance of identifying the sons of Zadok here? Okay, so Zadok is a priest during the time of David and Solomon. Uh, some of our listeners might be familiar uh, with uh, is it Handel's composition of Zadok the priest. Um, it's, it's kind of one of my favorite uh, kind of uh, choral music things. It's it's got it's got a nice ramp up, <laughs> lots of violins and things going, and then and then you have the choirs. You know, sing about Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. And it's, it's wonderful. And it's like, okay, well, why bring this in? It's like, well, because this Zadok in the time of David and Solomon was a critical figure. Um, if, if you remember the times of David and Solomon, they weren't exactly um, calm. <laughs> <laughs> You have a lot of uh, political intrigue, palace intrigue. You got people wanting to, like, you know, get rid of David and put Absalom in. And you had some of the priests being involved with that. Um, after David's death, you got some people be like, no, we don't want Solomon uh, to be king. We want Adoniah to be king. And you had some of the priests, even like high priests involved with that. And through all those kind of topsy-turvy things in the time of David and Solomon, Zadok was the faithful one. He was the one who kept his devotion and loyalty to David as the Lord's chosen ruler. And to Solomon, as the Lord's chosen successor to David. And these descendants of Zadok are being told in this vision of, uh, of Ezekiel now, centuries later, that they would be involved with keeping um, uh, charge of the altar. And it's like, well, why that? It's like, well, perhaps they're speaking about that faithfulness. Um, that in, in fact, actually, that, that faithfulness is even kind of alluded to a little bit later in the vision here, that they were some of the priests who maintained their actual loyalty and piety and devotion to God, unlike many of their compatriots who had become 
you know, um, idolaters and, um, you know, other uh, practitioners of evil um, and not devoted to the Lord in his ways. And there may be even kind of this tie, especially with this idea of being, if, if this vision is being kind of pointing towards the Messiah and the Messianic age or, the, or, or what the Messiah is going to bring in, that you might have that even tie to be like, well, who are the people who serve him? The people who serve him are going to be the ones who are devoted to this great descendant of David, just like their forefather or spiritual forefather, we might say, Zadok was faithful to the David who was foreshadowing that Messiah. So the sons of Zadok there in verse 46, as we think about the, how this would apply to us as Christians, that's speaking of, of what sometimes we call the priesthood of the baptized, the whole Christian church on earth. These are the ones who get to, mm -hmm. because of their, again, God-given faithfulness, they are the ones who get to come close and minister to the Lord. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Very good. Very, so, very much so. So, Pastor Zimmerman, to, to round out the text for today, in, in verses 48 and 49, the vestibule of the temple, it sounds like now Ezekiel is, is preparing to go into the temple itself, but again, there's an entrance to go through. Tell us about those last two verses of the text. So, you, right in front of the temple sanctuary itself, which is, uh, again, a lot of times when we think of temple, we think of the temple sanctuary, although we probably should think of like the entire grounds. But as you're getting right close to that main building, what you might call the temple proper or temple sanctuary, there's, a, there's a, like a portico or, or vestibule, uh, which kind of sticks off of it. Um, and Ezekiel is shown it. And he's shown, oh, here's the dimensions here. And it's got uh, pillars on each side. And that is, again, kind of reflective of the architecture of the, of the first temple, of Solomon's temple. Uh, Solomon's temple had two big brass pillars on, on either side, um, kind of flanking the entryway, kind of his portico there. And, of course, we think of pillars, and, and, and especially when you think of two pillars, we, our mind might jump all the way back to the Exodus, right? You had the pillar of, of cloud and the pillar of fire, which... which uh, visualized uh, the Lord's uh, presence with his people. Um, and so that's probably plain there, uh, signs of the Lord's presence, and that he's uh, preserving his people, because that was also part, it was just was he was there, it was that he was also active uh, among his people while working for them, looking out for them. But as it was kind of also interesting is we're also told that this portico area has like steps and the stairway has 10 stairs, the flight of 10 stairs. And you're like, all right, so we go in and we have a seven stairs uh, to get into the outer court. And then we go up eight stairs to get into the inner court. And we talked about, you know, seven and eight having um, kind of meaning. And now if you would go into the temple sanctuary, you got to go up 10. And of course, 10 is a number of like, like kind of completeness that, that we talk about, uh, almost like divine completeness. And if you add all the steps together, the 10 and the 8 and the 7, that 25, which is half 50, shows up again, which, which is kind of interesting. 
Um, and so it's perhaps like this, again, conveying this idea of, you know, God's presence here and aspects of uh, God's total completeness and perfection, which can be seen in the sanctuary. And that really, as you have access to the Lord here in this way, he is actually setting you free from the slavery of sin and death and Satan. And that's what he wants to do for his people. Pastor Zimmerman, with about two minutes left, help us to wrap up this text and this mo- this morning, and particularly, again, show us how this text points us to Christ. Sure. So what we want to emphasize is that Christ is the fulfiller of all these things that are tied with temples and sacrifices. And what we're looking forward to is that we will be present with him, his people. That's the, that's the ultimate promise. And the ultimate promise of what the Christ, what the Messiah would accomplish, can be tied to those Old Testament things that we're familiar with, that Ezekiel's people, his audience would have been familiar with. And so when we're talking about a vision that has restoration of things and has perfection in it, we are looking forward to a time that through the Christ's work, we will be perfected. We will be sanctified. We will be made holy. We will have access to God himself, and we will be able to be in his presence, which our sin prevents us from having, but that the Christ's work overcomes. And that is the great future that we are looking forward to And it could be a future of restoration, just like the exiles that Ezekiel is speaking to we're looking forward to. That's our hope. Our hope isn't for this this world, this time, and and neither would Ezekiel's audience have their hope just for this time. But be looking forward to an age and time that that the Lord would bring about. And we, we know the one who did it. Now we're waiting for its fulfillment. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 28 to 49. Pastor Zimmerman, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions on the book of Ezekiel or comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org, or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.